Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, John Crace looks on as Rishi gaslights the UK with his North Sea plan while the world burns. Comedian Michelle Brazier explains why she befriended her scammer and world heavyweight champion Tyson Fury weighs in on marriage, mental health, and life as a multimillionaire in Morecambe. Before we begin, just a warning. This episode contains a bit of bad language and references to suicide. Please take care while listening. Now. By flying by private jet to Scotland to conduct a stroppy five-minute interview on his intention to drill, it's clear, according to John Crace, that Rishi Sunak is only interested in one thing, and it's not saving the planet. Read by Dan Starkey. Some would call it shameful. The reckless abandoning of the UK's net zero commitments, the torching of environmental policies, all at a time when larger areas of southern Europe were suffering extreme temperatures. Rishi Sunak wouldn't. He is a man with no sense of shame, just the bizarre belief in his own infallibility. The absolute entitlement of the boy king, brought up to think he could do no wrong. It was week two of the Conservatives' latest reinvention. Managed decline just isn't cutting it anymore. The country can't take any more of a government whose only promise is to screw things up just a little slower than before. We're on our knees already. So Sunak has gone for the bright lights of pyrotechnics. Anything to make himself look a little different from Labour. Time to ease back on the green agenda. Why worry about 2050 when the real crunch date is 2024, the next election? After all, who in their right mind would vote for a party that was bothered about saving the planet? Fair to say that maybe Rish hadn't thought this one through, hadn't read the polling data on the popularity of green politics. That comes from letting Lee Anderson and Jonathan Gullis decide party policy. But what the hell? Sunak was on a roll. Just a quick radio interview with BBC Scotland, and then he could fly off to Aberdeenshire to announce he was going to max out the gas and oil supplies in the North Sea. Or rather, re-announce it, as he had already briefed the media on his plans the night before. No matter. Rish was a past master at saying the same thing over and over again. Good morning, said Martin Geisler, BBC Scotland's morning presenter. 
Even though we've been told by the lead interview, your office has told us we've only got five minutes. You've got rather less than that now, replied Sunak snippily. Why couldn't people appreciate just what an important and busy person he was? Journos should just be grateful for any time he gave them, not keep moaning that it wasn't enough. Didn't they realise how much he had on his plate? Only the previous evening, he had got a message from the housekeepers in California, saying the pool boy was off sick, and he and the family were meant to be going later in the week. That pool wasn't going to clean itself. Why was it always him who had to fix things? Geisler interrupted Sunak's train of thought. If you can call what he does when he's not talking, thinking. I just wanted to make it clear to our listeners that you haven't allowed us enough time to do a proper interview. Just so they know why some questions may not get asked, Geisler said. Rish, by now in a full-on grump, said, You can ask what you want, but there's no guarantee I'm going to answer anything. Rather, I'm just going to repeat a few mindless soundbites until the full five minutes are up. So let me start by making clear that we are in no way rowing back on any of our commitments to net zero by granting more than 100 new drilling licences. It was like this. The government was very much hoping the public was stupid enough to think that oil and gas would be in production within days of the licences being issued. As it was, it would be about 20 years, by which time the world might well already have burned up. So no harm done. Why go to the effort of doing the right thing when the pragmatic and proportionate response was to do the wrong thing? Far better to do nothing than to not spend enough to avoid a climate crisis. Hell, why couldn't the Greeks stop moaning and just stay inside and put the aircon on? Let me explain net zero again, said Sunak when Geisler threatened to ask another question. We will be meeting net zero by meeting net zero. He couldn't make it any plainer than that. The whole point about British oil and gas was that it was better than foreigners' oil and gas. Much easier to carbon capture and store. At which point, every listener in Scotland concluded their Prime Minister was a total halfwit. If that. Because Rish had no idea that British oil and gas was sold on the international market at global prices, so there were no discounts on offer for homegrown gas, because Rish had no idea that the real damage from fossil fuels came when they were used, not when they were imported. Because Rish had no idea most oil and gas entered the country via underground pipelines. Because Rish had forgotten that the licences didn't guarantee energy security, as they wouldn't be producing anything for two decades. Because Rish was Rish, a man who couldn't stop himself from taking the country for mugs. I've just been told that my five minutes are up and we've got nowhere, said Geisler, more or less. It was in the tears of despair. So could he just ask how Sunak was travelling to Scotland? Plane, train or automobile? Or helicopter? Which reminded him, must do something about those low chopper networks. So annoying when all the neighbours are flying at the same time. Sunak was now in a mega strop. It was outrageous to expect him to take public transport, and he certainly wasn't taking a commercial flight. With the great unwashed, you didn't know where the stale air had been. The germs. And sitting near strangers. So, of course, he was taking another private flight. I mean, he wasn't paying for it himself, so who cared? It's the most efficient means of transport, Rish added. Uh, we'll be the judge of that. Seeing as you've already announced all this already... 
maybe the most efficient thing to do would have been to stay at home. To give us a break from your hypocrisy. Let's face it, taking a private jet isn't exactly a ringing endorsement of your commitment to net zero. But Sunak wasn't finished with Geisler. By attacking him for taking a private jet, the radio presenter was declaring war on everyone who had ever been on holiday. And no one deserved a holiday more than Rish. After all the sacrifices he had made last year to fight the Tory leadership election, the favour he had done to the nation, a leadership election he had lost. His family still hadn't forgiven him for the holes they had missed. California dreaming. It was delusional stuff. Desperate. Maybe Sunak does need a holiday. The country could certainly do with a holiday away from him. As does the planet. That was Rish Gaslights the UK with Norsey Plan While the World Burns by John Crace. Read by Dan Starkey. Next, when Australian comedian Michelle Brazier contacted the seller of a Pilates reformer she had bought online, she had no idea it would be the start of an unlikely and troubling friendship. Read by Sarah Aubrey. Listen, 2020 wasn't my best year. I spent a lot of time in my bathtub. Actually, a large clear storage tub in the bottom of my shower. Eating bread I certainly didn't make. And watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Clear plastic, I discovered to my horror, is a material that fares best when it doesn't have your flesh pressed right up against it. So I made a healthy decision to buy some workout equipment online and slowly wean myself off bath time. Looking on Facebook Marketplace, I found a Pilates reformer, a sort of bed on rails, a lie-down trampoline with resistance straps for your arms and legs. They are usually very expensive, at least 2000 Australian dollars, 1560 pounds, but this one was listed for $500. Absolute bargain. The seller was a man named Jacob, not his real name, in Adelaide, thousands of kilometers away from me in Melbourne, and certainly beyond the 5 kilometer radius the lockdown allowed us to travel. No matter, he would courier it. Legend. Jacob looked like the kind of guy you'd warn your friend not to date. His profile revealed lots of pictures of him partying with his mates, trips to Bali, nights out at the casino with the lads, lads, lads. He sold me the Pilates reformer, and he used his own profile with his real name. This was a public profile that was 10 years old. 10 years worth of data. So I felt confident in transferring him the cash, despite only having seen the merchandise online. Before I clicked go on the purchase, I already had his friends and parents' names, his football club, gym and workplace. I knew that he summered on the Gold Coast, went to a private school and enjoyed the movie Step Brothers. I transferred Jacob $500. It isn't millions, but I work in the arts, so it's quite a big chunk of cash for me. In fact, I've never had a spare $500 before, and this story will probably serve as evidence as to why I probably won't again. The day after I sent Jacob the money, I sent him a message. Hey Jake, just wondering if I can grab the shipping info. 
Hi, Michelle. The guy's been delayed, but I will send it through on Monday. Guess what happened on Monday? Nada. On Tuesday, I gently nudged him. Hey, Jake. Just looking for an update on the reformer. Sorry to hassle you. Sorry to hassle you? Why are women... So sorry, Michelle. He's been delayed again. He will pick it up on Thursday, along with some other equipment I'm sending through to Melbourne. Thursday came and went. As the days crept by, Jacob made excuse after excuse as to why the reformer hadn't arrived yet. And it started to dawn on me that maybe this was too good to be true. Maybe I was being scammed. I knew I should probably go to the police. And I threatened to do it too. Listen, mate, I don't know what's going on in your life, but it's becoming clear to me that you're trying to scam me out of my money. You've used your real profile to scam me. You must know how easy it is for me to report you. So what I'm really interested in is how you got to such a difficult place in your life that you were willing to be so reckless. You don't have to tell me what's going on but you do have to give me my money back within the next three days or I'm going to the cops. And if you do want to tell me what's going on, we're in lockdown over here in Melbourne. I've got nothing but time. He told me the last few months had been a scary time, mental health-wise. And I felt a pang of guilt, which is ridiculous, but I still felt it. He hinted that he was feeling like he might want to opt out of this life, And I felt worried for him. I felt responsible. Jacob FaceTimed me after I messaged him. I was surprised to see such a vulnerable and sad man on the other end of the call. And he was very surprised to see the girl one from his favourite Australian sketch comedy group, Auntie Donna. Not only was I being scammed by a very sad man... This was the kind of person who watches the TV shows I'm in. This was my audience great. Jacob begged me for more time, said he needed just two more weeks, but after that he would send me a refund. He refused to admit out loud that he had scammed me, but it was this sort of unspoken thing between us. He made excuses like, the courier is just really busy. Excuses he knew I didn't believe. I just wanted my refund and in return I wouldn't go to the police. He sent me a picture of his ID to hold on to as collateral and asked me to make a video saying hello to his mate who loves my comedy. I didn't make the video. Two weeks came and went, and guess what? No cash. But something else happened in those two weeks. We had started sort of joking with each other via Facebook Messenger, checking in to see how lockdown was treating me. Not well, Jake. It's week 11 of lockdown too. And how life was treating him. And now that it was clear that he had indeed tried to scam me using his actual Facebook profile, like an amateur, I wanted to ask him questions. Why did he think he could get away with this when he was so easy to find? But that's the thing. It wasn't that he thought he could get away with it. He just didn't think at all. It wasn't about the long term for him. It was desperation. It was about survival. 
He slowly told me his history of gambling, drinking and drug abuse. He was never specific about what happened. He would just say sweeping things like, My missus left me when I went out and blew 40 grand in one night. But when I asked him how he could lose that much money so quickly, he would just shrug it off. I suppose he didn't know how. Maybe if he did, he wouldn't be in this position. He struck me as more of a toddler than a grown man. From what I can piece together, Jacob would scam someone and then sort it out when it caught up with him by gambling or begging from his family. He would start new fires in an attempt to put out others. I was interested in how a person ends up like this, more interested than I was in going to the police and getting my money back. I asked him how his family were. Did they still speak to him? Had he had a relapse? What was he looking forward to? Anything to keep him talking. And, if I'm honest, to keep him alive. As Jacob stalled on giving me my money back, he answered my questions more and more freely, offering vulnerability in place of payment. He owed all his friends, family and co-workers money. He had talked his way out of plenty of failed investments and forgotten repayments. We spoke regularly, and suddenly we were becoming something else. Something like friends. Just two people who every now and then would message each other normal things like, I hope you're getting the help you need. I'm running out of second chances. I have to go to the police soon. And... Yeah, my friend Luke bought a jet ski, so we've been getting around on that, which is pretty sick, distracting me from my menti bee. I didn't trust him. I didn't even like him. But I was curious about him. I like to dress it up as altruism. But it's possible that I was just slowing down to drive past a car crash and have a sticky beak. A peek behind the curtain. This poor little rich boy from a fancy school who got it all so wrong. It felt like empathy, but also like perversion. His friends and family ran out of patience. I soon became the only person left in Jacob's life still talking to him. And when he wound up in the hospital due to his declining mental health, he asked me to be his emergency contact. His next of kin... My partner, at this point, was furious. He begged me to just call the police. But I couldn't. I was deep in a story, and I didn't have a good ending yet. Also, I wanted to know if he really was in hospital, or if this was a tactic to stall me. Agreeing to be Jacob's emergency contact seemed absurd at the time, and more absurd now. A dare I accepted out of shock at such a bold and vulnerable request. And he was vulnerable, more than I'd realised. When Jacob first made an attempt on his own life, he had been cut off by his family and friends. His parents had remortgaged their home trying to keep up with paying back his many victims, his gambling debts, court fines and credit card bills. They carried the most shame. He had done them so much damage, in the way we only do to those we love the most. They were right to step back from him, and that's maybe what made me feel that I, a complete stranger with nothing but $500 to lose, 
was right to step in where they couldn't, to relieve them of their duties for a bit. Strangers can afford each other a kindness that is lighter and easier to accept than the kindness of those who love us unconditionally. There is no shame attached to the kindness of a stranger. Or strangers. Almost a year later, I'd started telling the story, using a fake name for him, on podcasts and the radio. People started getting in touch with me from all over Australia. Some of his friends contacted me. They recognised the scenario and told me about his many other victims. And then, a girl named Emily sent me a message. Emily had also tried to buy one of the Pilates reformers. She had been patient and kind to him. She was someone who had shared my experience. I wonder how many of us there were. Emily and I connected up all the dates he had told us he was in hospital. We worked out that he was telling us the same story, regardless of whether or not it was true. And we'll never really know. I don't really care. I'm grateful for the shared experience. We wore him down, putting in the hard work, until he eventually paid Emily back all but $25, and me all but $60. I don't know how he got that money. Emily and I decided it was best not to ask. We were both glad we had helped him, even if only some or none of the things he had told us were true. Because assuming an arsehole has had a bad day or a hard life makes you feel better than letting yourself be taken for a fool. I don't want to know what lies he told me. I'm more interested in what I learned about myself. I should probably say, don't do what I did. It wasn't smart, and it wasn't necessarily safe. But it was a wild ride. And now I've made a show about what happened as a cautionary tale or as an argument for radical empathy. Jacob very nearly played himself too, until I decided it might be better to keep a physical distance between us. You can only go so far with people you don't really know before you're taking silly risks. Jacob is now studying for a qualification to work in drug and alcohol addiction. He attends Alcoholics Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous. He is reaching out to all those he has wronged and slowly paying back his parents. He thanks me for showing him kindness, for showing him there are people in the world who will offer you a safe place to land, even when you don't deserve it. He is, for absolutely no want of a better word, reformed. When I did the show telling this story in Australia, I sold out, moved to a larger venue and made enough money to buy myself a brand new Pilates reformer. So really, in the end, I sometimes wonder, who scammed who? I still talk to Jacob sometimes. I think he's about to go to prison, but I don't know what for. He is always telling me half-stories, and I pick up bits and pieces from his friends. But there are lots of answers I'll never get. Whatever happens to him... I hope he gets help, and not just punishment. I am, in equal parts, proud and ashamed of how I acted. I am happy with the wrap-up, where Jacob and I landed, and I am glad that I was there for him. I talked this arguably terrible man down off a ledge many times. I don't know if the world is better with him in it, but my world 
is better for at least having tried. That was How I Made Friends with My Scammer by Michelle Brazier, read by Sarah Aubrey. We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally. Why did world heavyweight champion Tyson Fury invite cameras into his home to make a fly-on-the-wall show? To prove, finds out Tim Jones, that he's still just like the rest of us. Read by Jason Doan. Paris Fury is sitting on a stool in her kitchen, hair in curlers, conducting the orchestra of kids around her. Prince, her eldest son, has failed to buy jeans for the photo shoot taking place in an hour's time, so he's swiftly dispatched with cash to get some. Venezuela, her eldest daughter, needs her hair brushing, and only a mother's touch will do. Various other children, the Furies have six with another on the way, come and go, requesting sausage rolls, rice pudding, drinks, toys, strokes of the new puppy, you name it. I'm sorry about all this. Paris will occasionally say, but the truth is she's got the chaos under control. Watching it unfold is like being in an episode of At Home with the Furies, the nine-part fly-on-the-wall reality series that's due to hit Netflix later this month. The only difference is that the most unruly member of the house, the one who causes Paris the most stress, is not here. Tyson Fury, the heavyweight champion of the world, decided to go to the gym at 7am, and nobody's sure what time he might arrive back. Having watched At Home with the Furies, it's not entirely clear if Tyson will arrive back. In the show, we get to see the mental demons that have plagued his life at close range. Mood swings, impulsive decisions, sudden disappearances. The taxi driver who drops me outside the Fury house, a five-bed on the edge of Morecambe, with gold curtains, his and hers thrones, and a gigantic Gypsy King logo freshly laid in the back drive, tells me how friendly the family are. Very down to earth. I often see them doing their shopping in Asda, he says. Before adding darkly, but let's just say that the Tyson Fury you'd pick up when he's doing fine is nothing like the Tyson Fury you'd pick up when he was in a very bad place. He's referring to the depressive black hole that Fury fell into after beating Vladimir Klitschko in 2015, 
to claim the IBF, IBO, WBA Super and WBO Heavyweight titles. Reaching the pinnacle of his sport should have been a triumph, but Fury was alarmed to find he felt empty. He started drinking heavily, taking cocaine, things he used to be vehemently against. He ballooned to 30 stone, 190 kilograms, and contemplated suicide. On one particular desolate night, he almost drove his Ferrari into a bridge at high speed. And then he did something astonishing. Fury not only pulled himself out of his hole, but fought his way back to fitness. Then, in one of the most remarkable sporting comebacks of all time, he became heavyweight champion of the world once more. It would be easy to assume the story ends here, happily, but as the show highlights, he is still at the mercy of his mental health. On a good day, it's great, and you get these incredible highs where he wants to do everything, take the children everywhere, says Paris. And then you get a dark day where he's very down, completely shutting everybody out and questioning what's the point of life. I've learnt that you have to kind of roll with it. A car pulls up outside and a figure approaches the house, a towering presence, but looking surprisingly slim in polo shirt and shorts. Hello, he announces, as he walks past the people from Netflix and The Guardian who've assembled in his kitchen. No idea who you are. Or you. Or you. He's funny, Tyson Fury. It's part of the reason, alongside the ability to knock out some of the toughest men ever to fight, he's become such a star. Like Muhammad Ali and Prince Nassim before him, Tyson knows that boxing is entertainment as well as sport. He once turned up for a press conference in a Lamborghini dressed as Batman, after all. Which is why his fights draw huge audiences, and why he's been offered serious money to make a Netflix show. Holding court in the kitchen, he explains why the family's new Rottweiler pup, Moses, is so special. He has one blue eye and one brown eye, and feels hilariously left-field questions from TV director-producer Tina, the woman who convinced him to let cameras into the house for six months. Spotting a stray tenor by the kitchen sink, she asked Tyson what he'd do if he saw me stealing it. I'd take him outside, he says, and say, here, have £200, because you obviously need the money if you're doing things like that. Not for the last time today, it's an answer I didn't see coming. I'm not clever. I've had no education beyond the age of 11, Fury says. Although he's obviously smart. Discussing hydrogen engines one minute and the early 1950s petition for the founding of Romanistan, a proposed country for the Roma people the next. He also reels off a list of media outlets that he will not be speaking to in the near future, if ever. The BBC, the Daily Mail, Talk Sport. All for the reason of printing shite and fake news. Thankfully, The Guardian isn't mentioned. So we retire to the Blue Room for our interview. A living space with plush sofas, a rendering of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel fresco on the ceiling, and a big chandelier that shakes whenever the kids get too boisterous upstairs. Why, I ask, did they want to let cameras in to film their lives? 
We're all over the media every day anyway, says Tyson. But they portray a different portrait of what we really are. Being a big superstar boxer, a multimillionaire, people think, oh, he's going to be living this extravagant lifestyle. But when they see it, I think they're going to be pretty shocked. Most days we just sat at home being tortured alive by six kids, says Paris. This might be a strange thing to say about a family who have a Michelangelo on their ceiling, but normality is important to the Furies. It's why they live in Morecambe, away from the celebrity world. In the show, you watch Tyson grumbling about having to haul rubble from his roof, or Paris juggling a dozen household chores. Couldn't they just pay someone to sort all that stuff for them? It's normal life, isn't it? says Paris. And it's showing the kids normal life as well. I don't want them to think that somebody's going to do their supermarket shopping or run and get their shoes. You're not sending a personal shopper to go to Harvey Nichols to pick you out a dress. You're running to Primark to get socks and underpants. That's normality. And even though there's times when that's not possible because you're jetting off to one of Tyson's fights, we try to keep some normality at home. Tyson nods. If you took all those jobs away, what would I be doing? Sat upstairs wanking myself silly. Paris rolls her eyes. Talk about lowering the tone. For someone with a lot on her plate, Paris seems content. Although that's probably not a word you could ever use for her restless husband. The show depicts him leaving family parties at the drop of a hat, or booking and then cancelling luxury holidays at a moment's notice. The portrait of his mental illness is unflinching and not always sympathetic, because that's how depression appears to outsiders. Fury is nothing but charming today, but during the interview he occasionally seems to zone out, a distant expression on his face, and it's hard not to imagine what kind of whirling thoughts are going on inside his head. Then he'll snap back into the room with a joke that brings the house down. Was it hard letting the cameras film his darker moments? I've been very open about my mental health, for people to take notes and learn from my mistakes, he says. And I believe I've saved a lot of lives by doing so, so I'll continue to talk about it daily. I don't think mental health is ever cured, is it, says Paris. It can't be just solved and switched off and put in a cupboard. It's got to be continued with. So that's what we do on a daily basis. And you can see how we go through life with Tyson's issues, which are a lot less than they used to be, admittedly. I don't know, says Tyson quietly, staring into the distance. What does he do to keep his mental health positive? Any drugs or therapy? Training is my medication, he says, suddenly upbeat again. A healthy lifestyle, training regularly, and a structured routine with short-term goals. Now that we've diagnosed it, you recognise certain trigger points, says Paris. When Tyson comes in feeling down, years ago I used to get straight on his case. What's the matter with you? Why you got a problem? Now I sort of let him roll with it. I maybe suggest a walk or a coffee. Lift the mood without going too deep. Because if you go too deep, he'll start denying the fact that he's in a mood, and then it causes a row. Fury delivers an impression. Why are you in a mood? I'm not in a mood. But why are you in a mood? I'm not in a mood. It's difficult to deal with Tyson on a daily basis, says Paris. Anyone who works with him understands this, even his friends. The door flies open, 
It's four-year-old Adonis, their youngest boy. Every Lego I build, Athena breaks it, he says. All right then, says Paris. You build it and put her out of the area. And Tyson, their second son, a.k.a. Tutty, don't let her break his Lego. Paris was 15 when she met Fury in the summer of 2005. She was surprised to learn this giant of a man with bushy sideburns was only a year or so older than her. They were both from traveller communities. He grew up in Style, a village near Manchester Airport, whereas she grew up on Tilt's Farm, a traveller site in South Yorkshire. The next year, they went on their first date to see King Kong at the cinema. Fury waited until the end of the film when Kong was climbing up the Empire State Building before going in for the first kiss. Took me an hour and forty minutes to pick up the courage, he admits. Paris liked Fury because he seemed different from other lads she knew. He was often quiet and shy, and he had a plan. He was going to become a boxer, and then the heavyweight champion of the world. You had a quiet confidence about you, didn't you, she says. They married in 2008. The couple faced prejudice for being travellers, sometimes being turned away from venues and shops. That was years ago, not so much now, says Tyson. Not to me face, anyway. It's mainly slimy little fuckers behind me back. But I've got eyes everywhere in this town. So I'll go into a sandwich shop or whatever, and then when I walk out, someone will say, who does he think he is, a jippo in a Rolls Royce? But I hear back, because someone will tell me who's in the shop at the time. He rejects the idea that this may hold him back in any way. Everybody's got a problem with somebody. I hate that victim mentality. Oh, he doesn't like me. You just get on with it. In Paris's 2021 book, Love and Fury, she talks about mental health being a particularly taboo subject in traveller communities. But when I bring this up, Tyson's response surprises me. All this traveller shy I'm not interested in, he says. We're all human beings. There is no traveller community. If there is, I'm not part of it. It's all the real world. Everyone's in the same community. After Fury first won the heavyweight title, there was a backlash in the press as past comments were brought to the surface. Fury claimed that no one wants to see a gypsy do well, which may have had some truth to it. But some of the criticism was justified. He'd made comments, often wrapped up in Old Testament language, about women, Jews, gay and transgender people that can only be described as vile. There are only three things that need to be accomplished before the devil comes home. One of them is homosexuality being legal in countries. One of them is abortion and the other one's paedophilia, he told the Mail on Sunday in 2015. Who would have thought in the 50s and 60s that those first two would be legalised? He's offered apologies since for causing offence, explaining how that's the last thing a Christian man would want to do. But for many, it has soured the Fury story. I wonder how he looks back on what he's said. I'm a sportsman. We've all made mistakes in the past and I don't regret anything, he says. At that time, there was a lot going on in my life. I was a very ill person. I didn't want to live, so I didn't care about anything. You can't really be judged for your actions when you're unwell. It's like trying to judge a crazy person. But I'm not interested in talking about that bullshit. I'm here to talk about Netflix, not stuff that I've done in the past. 
Later, it's suggested to me that I was lucky he didn't walk out of the interview. Fury, I'm told, feels ashamed of the comments, something I can easily believe. But if that's the case, explaining where they came from and how he's changed his outlook since might be the best way to move forward. Instead, we head for safer ground by discussing the family dynamic. In interviews, Paris has said that Tyson, when he's not away training for a fight or struggling mentally, shares the childcare 50-50. But he's not having this. It's not 50-50. Paris does it all, he says. Paris does all the stuff in the house, and I do everything outside. I do the bins, I do the school run, and I pick up the dog shit. I'm an expert at the dog shit picking up. Love it. I absolutely love it. What else does he do? I get my brains knocked out and pay the bills, right? Hoovering, or whatever, is her job. Well, that's funny, I say, because I'm sure I read that you were a whiz with a vacuum cleaner. I am a whiz with a vacuum, he accepts. I'm OCD, so I do it. I'm not an untidy person. If I see an empty cup or whatever, I wash it up, pack it away, not a problem. He's always been a grafter, but domestic life doesn't seem to be a natural fit for Tyson. Whenever he's tried to retire from boxing, he swiftly gets lured back into the ring. Without the sport and the training routine it provides, Fury seems to spiral. In one episode of the show, he says, I'd rather get punched the fuck out of by ten world champions than have to stay at home and do these jobs. And I would, he says. A housewife's got a very hard job. I'd rather labour all day and make fifty quid than have to look after six screaming kids in the house. Is that nice to hear, Paris? Yeah, she says. That does make me feel better, because I know that I'm appreciated. She smiles. Tyson has had to take the reins on occasions, and after two or three days, he'll be shaking on the phone. When are you coming back? They're a good fit, Paris and Tyson. Without her there behind him, fiercely loyal, no-nonsense, but always open to learning and adapting. It's impossible to say how much Tyson would have achieved or even if he'd still be here. She was heavily pregnant when he competed to try to regain the heavyweight title against Deontay Wilder in 2018. And whenever he fights, my insides are just shaking. Tyson had been gradually taking control of the fight, when in the final round, Wilder landed a punch that floored the Gypsy King. Most people, commentators, the crowd, Wilder himself, assumed the fight was done. Paris tried to climb over the barriers to get to her husband, but by the time she was near the ring, Tyson had somehow risen from the dead, like a WWE character, and he was fighting back. I remember thinking, whatever are you doing? I just wanted him to run away, I wanted it all to be finished, and he was throwing punches, says Paris. The match ended with a draw, and Wilder retaining the title, Controversially, as many commentators thought Tyson was the overall victor. But Fury reclaimed his crown by winning a rematch 14 months later. I think it's very difficult watching a partner, accepts Tyson. How would he feel about his kids going into the family trade? Pretty good, because boxing gives kids a very good structure and a good start in life. His daughter, Venezuela, was once keen. Tyson briefly had an image of her as the next Layla Ali, until she got punched in the nose and said, I don't like that, Daddy. 
These days, 11-year-old Prince is showing signs of interest, but Tutty is the child most likely to box. Does he have a strong punch? Yeah, says Tyson. All of them have. They're all strong kids. Are they scared of him? He looks at me like I'm daft. I tell them one thing, they do another. They're more scared of me, says Paris. I could scream this place down. Makes no difference. She can raise a voice and they do it. It's time to take some pictures, which means getting eight Furies dressed in their Sunday best and rounded up together in one room. Tyson nips upstairs and returns in a suit decorated with multicoloured logos of his energy drink, Ferocity. I don't fancy the photographer's chances of getting everyone to look at the camera at once, but they're remarkably well behaved, even putting their hands up before answering her questions. If anyone looks out of sorts, it's Tyson, who seems keen to get it all over with. Smile for the camera so we can finish, he says. When it's time for a change of outfit, Tyson re-emerges in a wonderful camouflage co-ord tracksuit. But before more photographs can take place, he announces that he's off. Off? People look around nervously. I need to buy a sandwich, he says. When he hears that I'm walking back to my hotel, he kindly offers to give me a lift. I get into one of his gigantic vehicles and we head off. He's a slightly different Tyson in this environment. Still chatty, still charming, but softer. What's it like living in London, he asks. Is it safe? He prefers it up here in Morecambe. Proper people. Working class people. He doesn't get pestered as much when he's out and about up here. Fame, he says, is overrated. At first it's an ego boost, but if there was a way to have success without the fame, then I would. That's what worries me about this show. When it comes out, things could go up another notch again. He drops me right outside the door of my hotel. There you go, Tim. Nice to meet you. We shake hands, and I try to take one last gauge of what's going on inside that head of his. Then he drives off. To get a sandwich, to return for the photos, or to somewhere far, far away from all that madness. I honestly couldn't tell you. That was Tyson Fury on marriage, mental health, and life as a multimillionaire in Morecambe. I do the bins, I do the school run, and I pick up the dog poo. By Tim Jones. Read by Jason Doan. If you need any support following this episode, we've included links on the episode page at theguardian.com. Before you go, we wanted to recommend another great Guardian podcast. To mark 60 years since the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, this week's episode of Politics Weekly America sees Jonathan Friedland speak to the civil rights activist Reverend Al Sharpton. The pair discuss how the march led to the passing of the Civil Rights Act, why he still marches for police reform today, and how the godfather of soul, James Brown, influenced his life. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to, and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Dan Starkey, Sarah Aubrey, and Jason Doan. 
and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.